It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. I'm Robert Ovetz. I am the author of We the Elites, Why the U.S. Constitution Serves a Few, which was just published by Pluto. I'm also a senior lecturer in political science, and um, I teach labor relations in the Master of Public Administration program at a California university. And I'm also a labor writer for Dollars and Cents magazine and the Chief magazine as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come back on. We've had the pleasure of talking to you about several other books that you've written. We encourage people to go back and listen to those. Of course, we'll link those in the show notes. But this is a very timely book about the Constitution. But just to get us started, what made you want to write it? Great question. Uh, well, having taught thousands of young people about how our U.S. constitutional system works, I couldn't find a book that really met my needs. And about 10 years ago, I started thinking about how I really need to write that book uh, because I teach some of what's in the book in my class. I try to give a more balanced approach. Uh, but uh, many of the books that I read when I was an undergrad are long out of print. Michael Parenti's Democracy for the Few and uh, William Domhoff's uh, book um, on Who Rules America. Uh, and I just thought it was time that somebody take a look at the problems in our political system as being rooted in the Constitution itself, rather than it being about partisanship, the two parties failing to compromise or corrupt or power-hungry individual politicians. The problem is much deeper, and I felt like I needed to to write a book that would be accessible to anybody who wants to know about how the Constitution shapes the experiences we have today. Yeah, I just find it fascinating because across political lines, the Constitution either as an idea largely or just a symbol or even uh, you know, the document itself looms as this thing that is good. And if you fall outside of it or somehow do something against it, then that's considered bad. And largely on the left, there seems to be this desire to associate the Constitution with things like civil liberties, fundamental rights, due process. But what is the best way to actually look at the Constitution? Well, I, I had the book titled We the Elites because the first three words of the Constitution, we the people and the preamble, is really what most people think about when they think about the Constitution. And we grow up from the earliest age, if you are born and raised and go to school in the United States, you learn that we the people means everybody 
today is empowered to make decisions, to to self-govern ourselves through our system of quote-unquote democracy. And it's three of the most misleading words that we learn about our political system, and it's pretty much where it stops. And it really underlies a lot of the mythology and idolatry that uh, is behind our political system. We learn that our system is a model that's replicated throughout the world that others want to want to emulate and set up systems just like ours. And yet our system is really in a very it, it's a very small group of countries have anything even close to ours with checks and balances and um, courts that can overturn laws with judicial review and independently elected presidents. And so the Constitution itself has all these built-in mythologies around it, and it's and you have to peel away those layers. And one of those layers is like you're asking about, is that many folks on the left are in agreement with liberals, those in the center left um, or moderates, that the Constitution empowers us to uh, to have say, to uh, make change. It gives us rights somehow. Um, and that we have the ability to change, uh, to make changes when things are unjust or oppressive. And in fact, the Constitution was designed to do exactly the opposite. And it still pretty much functions exactly like it was designed in 1787. Yeah, and we're going to be teasing that out essentially throughout the conversation. But let's just start to get into that. So in the intro, you write, quote, the framers of the Constitution like their fellow wealthy elites, abhorred democracy as impossibly both anarchic and despotic. So just get into that. So I guess first we have to talk about who these people are and that they are wealthy, but also the fact that they abhorred democracy or sort of anything that like alluded to working class control or people running their own lives. Just talk about that. Yeah, so the, we don't really know very much about the framers as a society, but the record is pretty clear. The folks that showed up in Philadelphia out of about 70 or so who were elected to be sent to Philadelphia for this convention to originally revise the Articles of Confederation, not to replace it. Uh, the Articles was the first constitution. And the folks that show up, for the most part, are white, male, but not of the working class, not of the middle class. Uh, they are all from moderately rich to the richest man, perhaps, in the country at the time, George Washington. So the 55 men who uh, appear at the convention and only about 39 or so are there for all of it, uh, they, they are without exceptions, the ruling elite. They go to Philadelphia, uh, they go to the Constitutional Convention, in order to design a system that would serve their interests as the ruling property elites. At that time, when they arrive, uh, they've seen years of class conflict. They've seen what I call the three insurrections, slaves rebelling, including during the American Revolution, which scared many of them. Uh, we're seeing uh, Native Americans who are armed and starting to organize themselves across the continent to resist settler colonialism. And then lastly, and most importantly, they're seeing the everyday people, the laborers and particularly the small subsistence farmers who live far away from the cities and the towns and pretty much grow what they eat and eat what they grow and barter and are really outside of the cash system. 
they're seeing them organizing themselves and asserting their political influence on several states where they're able to get into the state legislatures and uh, create debtor-friendly laws and issue paper money and price controls. And when they fail or when um, the states are controlled by the elites um, and they're uh, imposing impressive taxes and, and debt collection rules, uh, they take up arms and in several states, uh, attack the state legislatures. And in the, in the case of Massachusetts, the, uh, famous Shays Rebellion of the then called the regulators who, uh, marched into battle against, um, a private mercenary army. And while they lost, uh, they continued their struggle with guerrilla type hit and run actions across several states. And that's what's going on. When uh, the resolution passes through Congress after years of effort to call a new con uh, convention, supposedly to fix the articles, but the folks that show up within two days have decided to engage in what uh, law professor Michael Klarman famously calls uh, the framers coup. Uh, they design an entirely new constitution. Now, the constitution they designed to get at your question is not democratic. And while we call our system a democracy, it's been changed a little bit since what the framers designed, and we can go into that. But what they really designed was a republic, a republic modeled after the Roman system, not the Athenian system of democracy. And so in a republic, you have representatives, uh, but they don't have to be elected and they don't have to operate according to democratic rules. Now, why did the framers do that? Well, they feared the consequences of these three insurrections and um, the their letters, the records of the debate at the Constitutional Convention, uh, their pamphlets, uh, the records of the debates at the state ratifying conventions, uh, various kinds of memos and notes that historians have accumulated and I've poured through for several years um, demonstrates that the framers uh, the, the, the so-called founding fathers, a term I really find distasteful, uh, but they were, they had a consensus that they didn't trust the everyday people to have their hands on the lever of power. They referred to the everyday people, what I call the working class as quote unquote, the many or those sorts of people or the meaner sort or the people out of doors. In other words, the people who got dirty and worked outside. Uh, if they were to have political power, uh, a very common term uh, of, of concern and fear, if that were to happen, is that they would form a tyranny of the majority. Uh, a, they saw majority rule as tyrannical. So whereas today we celebrate our system as rule by the majority, in fact, the system is designed to do the complete opposite. It's designed to prevent the majority from realizing its interests. In other words, the economic majority, the working class can almost never get its interests met unless there's essentially a mass revolt or insurrection or an economic crisis. Yeah, you of course mentioned this in the book, but there's this amazing quote by one of the signers, John Jay, those that own the country ought to govern it, which is really just emblematic of what you're talking about. But, you know, you mentioned one thing I want to ask you more about. So George Washington was the richest man in the country? Because I think most of us know that he, of course, owned slaves. But he was also like the Jeff Bezos of his time. Well, it, there's a there's a close uh, match between him and uh, the then governor um, 
of Pennsylvania, um, between those two being uh, the richest men in the country, there's no precise figures because one thing we've never done is we've never taxed wealth. Uh, and there's no opportunity to tax wealth today. And there was no tax on wealth then. There was there were taxes uh, at different times that were short lasting on houses and windows, believe it or not, and uh, whiskey and other forms of property. But um, so we don't know precisely. But the the historian the the historical record uh, is pretty pretty confident that Washington was either the richest man at the time or one of the top two or three richest. And Washington became rich not on his own. He had some slaves. He had some land. But it's when he married the wealthy uh, widow, uh, Martha Custis, that he inherited all of her hundreds of slaves and her vast lands. Um, and then he also was a speculator and had uh, many, many lands in western Pennsylvania. Um, so... I, I, I would think that Washington is, um, we could, we could, um, confidently call him, uh, one of the richest men, if not the richest man at the time. So it's interesting, you know, think about it. If, if we were to have a constitutional convention and Jeff Bezos ran it, um, I like connection there. You could see what the outcome would be, right? Yeah. It's like Elon Musk, but with slaves. Right. Elon Musk is actually the richest man. That's right. <laughs> and we're going to talk more about the interconnectedness between the Constitution and slavery as we go forward. But you go on to write, The framers' genius was in designing a virtually unchangeable system that provides the people with the semblance of participation and allows a few to, let, to select some representatives while the rest of us relinquish the power to self-govern. This is what a lot of people refer to as like, oh, we're a republic, we're not a democracy. But how is this system unchangeable? What role does the Constitution itself play in blocking that ability of the population to change? Because I think we still very much so like the idea that, you know, we're the ones in charge, we get to decide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's that's the elementary school mythology that we learn about the Constitution, that uh, it sets up a system of democratic, a democratic republic or representative democracy or or democracy uh, in which majorities rule. In fact, the, the dominant theory in the field I teach, majoritarian theory, um, teaches that the majority always decides. But the reality is that if you look at our system, um, it was designed on purpose to give very little direct input by the uh, eligible electorate. And, and, I, and I put the word eligible in there as an important modifier uh, because in Article 1, uh, the, the Constitution uh, essentially, uh, um, if you will, grandfathered in the rules for voting from the states. Uh, the Constitution itself uh, never gives us a positive right to vote. Uh, the only uh, right to vote that we actually have, for example, is in uh, the 15th Amendment, but it's a negative right. It says that that right to vote shall not be interfered with. Uh, so in the Articles, there's a complete absence of any right to vote. Uh, the only part of the federal system that is designed to have uh, any popular vote is the House of Representatives. And even then, the House is organized uh, into districts. 
Um, and Madison and, and uh, Hamilton both talked about, um, particularly Madison and Federalist Number Ten, but uh, Madison and Hamilton and some of the other Federalist papers talked about how uh, large districts and voting in different places was an important strategy of what they called divide and conquer or divide and imperia in Latin, um, and they thought it was necessary to to fracture the majority into these different geographical locations. Uh, where they would further fragment around different interests. And today, those interests are, of course, all the different wedge issues that keep us divided. Um, so that's the only place where originally uh, there was a popular vote. The, the president and the vice president were elected indirectly by the Electoral College, uh, which most people are aware of. Uh, and there's no requirement that uh, the electors uh, vote according to the will of the majority in their state. Uh, today, there's rules in about half the states that require that they do that. Uh, but of course, there can be an outcome uh, where the winner of the popular vote um, doesn't win the Electoral College, and we can get into that later. Uh, the judicial branch is not directly elected at all. Um, but is um, nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Uh, so there's virtually no democratic aspects in the Constitution as it was originally ratified, except one exception would be uh, jury trials for criminal cases. So juries are a form of direct democracy, modeled after what the Athenians had and later the Icelanders had uh, about a thousand years ago. Um, and, uh, but the reality was that they didn't include jury trials, uh, juries for civil trials, uh, and, and that's not added until the Seventh Amendment. So all through the, this new so-called federalist system are, uh, what I call minority checks. Um, in addition to having virtually no, uh, ability to vote for any part of the federal government, there are also possibilities of those who are opposed to change to block that change at numerous uh, choke points, if you will, throughout the design of the constitutional system. And I, just to give you an example of how that works, is this summer, President Biden was celebrated for signing a bill called the Inflation Reduction Act. What a lot of people don't realize is that the Inflation Reduction Act is the third incarnation of what used to be called the Green New Deal, which the center left has been promoting for 10 years. The Green New Deal went almost nowhere in Congress. Then during the pandemic, President Biden, when he came into office, brought up a bill called Build Back Better. It included paid sick and family leave and uh, extended child tax credits and, um, and funding to start to wean the economy off of fossil fuels. Well, we all know that bill passed the House, but it couldn't block the Senate. It couldn't pass the Senate because it was blocked by two Democratic senators. And that's an example of a minority check. A bill has to pass both houses of Congress. It has to get through every committee. And in the Senate, it's not in the Constitution, but the Senate was designed uh, uh, to have uh, the role of a check on the will of the majority. As Madison described the Senate, it was uh, a body of reasonable men who would keep the population from harming themselves by making the wrong decisions. Um, but the Senate also has another rule that's not in the Constitution called the filibuster. And so this bill couldn't pass the Senate. 
And we end up getting the Inflation Reduction Act, which has turned into the complete opposite of the Green New Deal and now actually subsidizes uh, users of fossil fuels. Industries that are the country's biggest polluters are now subsidized to adopt so-called green tech. So this is an example of the way minority checks work is the overwhelming majority of the population wants action to get us off fossil fuels. We want to keep this planet from being turned into toast. And yet the bill that starts that does a, a modicum of that in the end does the complete opposite. And that's not an accident. That's not the fault of Senator Cinema or Manchin who blocked that bill. That's the built in objective of the design of the Constitution of what the framers or we, we attribute to the framers as checks and balances. And what I argue is that these are not intended to prevent a new king or a dictator alone. These are also intended to keep the majority from ruling that it, the Constitution was designed in such a way that the elites would have numerous opportunities to block any change that would threaten their property interests. And uh, if they don't agree with it, that that attempt to change the law or uh, a regulation could be blocked. Um, so what we get is what in political science we call the sausage making process. And as a vegetarian, I would you know say it's a vegetarian sausage making process. But what goes in often doesn't look anything alike when it comes out because of these designs of minority checks to block the will of the majority. That's a fascinating example of the climate bill you're talking about. You know, you go on to write, and you already kind of talked a little bit about this, the framers were of one mind when it came to serving their shared elite economic interests. So I'm just curious if you can talk a little more about that shared economic interest and how did the kind of system that they created end up benefiting them? Yeah, so that's an excellent, excellent question. Uh, about a century ago, there was uh, a, a very influential book. It's still in print today um, that uh, examined the actual backgrounds of the framers. And it, the, the, the book was called The Economic um, Interpretation of the Constitution. And it was written by Charles Beard. And it's still an incredibly influential book today. Uh, Beard looked at the, um, the the property of each of the 55 framers. And while he made a few mistakes, he pretty much hit upon the fundamental thing that all the framers had in common. And that is they were all owners of significant property. They all had significant economic interests. And while they went into the convention with differing competing interests. About a third were slave owners or had uh, profited directly from slavery. Maybe 20% had significant amounts of unpaid debts left over from the states and the Congress from the Revolutionary War that couldn't be paid by, uh, except for a few states. Uh, there were others that were huge landowners like Washington and Franklin uh, who had vast speculative interests in these lands that were being expropriated from the Native Americans through this genocidal wars. Um, others were merchants and exporters like Robert Morris, who ran the finances of the, of the American Revolution and profited handsomely. Uh, there were bankers like 
Hamilton and Morris as well. What they does, what they discovered at the Constitutional Convention is they had a shared interest that they needed a system that would protect all forms of property, regardless of what types of property it is. In fact, Madison famously wrote that the objective of the government is to protect the acquisition um, and, and uh, the acquisition of all types of property. That was the primary objective uh, for Madison, um, perhaps the most influential of all the framers at the Constitutional Convention. So what came out was a document that represented the unified interests of what some might call the ruling class. And it was a system that essentially put into place protections for property all through the Constitution. Now, the most important form of property, without doubt, were humans held as slaves. Uh, chattel slavery, it, it, it produced trillions of dollars of wealth. It's the foundation of why the United States is the richest country in the world still and has, um, along with China, the largest national economy. And also why we designed an economic system that governs the planet today and uh, in the post-World War II era. So, but slave and slavery, those words don't appear anywhere in the Constitution, but we know that it was designed to protect slavery and to protect other forms of property. Those other forms of property include large lands, large amounts of lands, large tracts of lands in the West that were in dispute. And it very importantly protected the interests of uh, creditors who were trying to force the states to, to collect, to impose taxes, which triggered some of these revolts like Shays, in order to get repaid and to profit handsomely from it. So those framers who show up in Philadelphia have a joint project. They've all been in competition with each other, living in different states and being the elites of their states. But now they realize we can develop a national system of government that can set up, pr protect and promote the expansion of a powerful national economy. And that's what comes out is a constitution that puts into place minority checks all through the system uh, in order to protect property. You know, you write that the framers were quite aware that they were designing not only a system for the elites, but also one that was very complex. And I think this is a very interesting point that you make, that kept those who wanted to change the structure of society outside of it. Can you talk about sort of that understanding that they had. Yes, absolutely. You know, I think Madison speaks to this in Federalist Number 10 when he wrote that, quote, such democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as have been violent in their deaths. And it, he was he was echoed by many of the other framers, Governor Morris and Robert Morris. Hamilton called democracies amazing violence and turbulence. Um, he uh, he reiterated that in Federalist 21 when he said a successful faction may erect a tyrannies on the rule ruins of order and law. And even John Adams in an earlier book, a highly influential book, he wasn't at the convention, but his book influenced some of the framers. He described democracy as wasting its it wastes, exhausts and murders itself. So these were no fans of democracy. And essentially what they designed was a system that in order for change to happen, 
those who want change have to win every time. And those who are opposed to change only have to win once to block that change. And this is not a new idea. Uh, this is something that uh, uh, Ira Katznelson and his co-authors in The Politics of Power put very, very bluntly. Uh, this is a, a very popular textbook in political science uh, on the left that was in print for about 40 years. Uh, it was updated um, almost 10 times. It's no longer and it's no longer updated. Uh, but they make this point and uh, this is something that I expand upon and demonstrate in my book that how the Green New Deal became the Inflation Reduction Act is really a question of looking at all the opportunities to block change from the moment a bill is introduced in the House. It can be blocked by the Rules Committee. It can be blocked by any other committee it's assigned to a subcommittee. It can be uh, voted down by literally a handful or two of members of the House, even if all the other 435 members want to support this bill. But even if the bill passes the House, it may never get introduced in the Senate. So it's dead. But even if all 435 members of the House support the bill and 99 members of our 100 member Senate support the bill, a single senator can block that bill from ever being introduced into the Senate or even voted on. They can kill it at any time. But let's assume the bill passes both houses. All 535 voting members approve it. The president can veto it. They could probably override the veto, but they need two thirds to do that. But let's say they override the veto. Well, the states can refuse to enforce it. We've seen lots of examples of the states suing to block federal laws. Uh, the president could also refuse to enforce it. That's what got Trump impeached the first time. He refused to send that money to the Ukraine to help them uh, push back against the Russians occupying the eastern part of their country. Um, and even then, uh, the states can file a lawsuit in federal court and any federal court can find that the law is unconstitutional and a single judge or five Supreme Court justices can throw that law out. And we're back where we started. Uh, so all through the system, and that's a very simplified version of it, all through the system are the opportunities for those who just don't want change to block that change from happening. Now, those who want change in order to, to overcome those minority checks, they need to essentially open up their bill and say, OK, what do you want out? What do you want in? And that's why we get bills that are hundreds, even thousands of pages long that have embedded in them all kinds of giveaways and what we call pork in politics, uh, huge generous subsidies. And that's why bills that go in often look like an evil twin from a parallel universe when they come out. They don't do any of the things that they were originally doing when they were introduced. Uh, and this is not by accident. Uh, when we hear uh, politicians and, and pundits talk about the need to compromise, the need to come together, we should be watching out because that's when things get watered down. That's when uh, big giveaways happen. And that's when the original principles and objectives of a piece of legislation are essentially abandoned and tossed aside. Uh, th what the reason why I wrote this book was to show that this is not an accident. This is not the exception. This is the way our system has been designed and the way it still functions. It's in, as I call it in my book, it's, it's a love letter from the elites of 1787 
to the elites of 2022. And it's a system that's barely been changed and is almost impossible to change and doesn't serve the interests of the majority. And in fact, is probably the main reason why our planet is spiraling into a climate catastrophe. Washington, Washington, six foot eight weighs a fucking ton. Opponents beware, opponents beware. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Let me lay it on the line, he had two on the vine. I mean, two sets of testicles, so divine. On a horse made of crystal, he patrolled the land with the mason ring and schnauzer in his perfect hands. Here comes George, in control. Women dug his snuff and his gallant stroll. Eight opponents' brains. And invented cocaine. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Washington, Washington, six foot twenty, fucking killing for fun. Spread, spread, Delaware. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Sue me if I go too fast, but the sons of his opponents wish that he was their dad. Got a wig for his wig, got a brain for his heart. He'll kick you apart, he'll kick you apart. Ooh, he'll save children, but not the British children. 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 He made love like an eagle falling out of the sky. Killed his sensei in a duel, and he never said why. Washington, Washington, twelve stories high, made of radiation. The present beware, the future beware. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Did I mention his four nuts? Well, he also had four dicks. If you took off his boot, you'd see the dicks growing off his feet. I heard that motherfucker had like thirty goddamn dicks. He once held an opponent's wife's hand in a jar of acid. At a party. So, how did slavery and white supremacy shape and form the creation of the Constitution? So, as I as I uh, was talking about a little while ago, um, the protections for property are embedded all through the Constitution. Um, there are legal scholars that identify about twenty different ways that slavery is protected without those words ever being mentioned. Uh, slavery is referred to and slaves are referred to as um, others or um, uh, those held in terms of service. Um, so there's all kinds of what uh, the comedian George Carlin called weasel words in the Constitution. Um, slavery is really the backbone of the economic system. Although most of the slaves at the time of the convention are located uh, in what we call the southern states. There's slavery in every state except Vermont, although Vermont's not officially a state. Vermont uh, passed, it ratifies a, a state con constitution that uh, prohibits slavery. Um, but in the next few decades, virtually all the slaves are going to be just in the southern states that later on become the, the core of the confederacy that uh, secedes from the Union. So slavery is critical. Uh, to the economic system for obvious reasons, 
these are people that are held in horrific bondage and their labor is exploited without being paid. But slavery also serves another important function. Uh, it becomes the value of slavery becomes the means by which uh, Alexander Hamilton, who's much celebrated in that big popular Broadway play, which I love, by the way, I've seen it twice and listened to the the remix album and I love the music and the and the lighting and the dance. But one thing the play doesn't show and actually is dishonest about in the end is that Hamilton's financial plan to establish a publicly backed credit system is actually financed in a big part by deposits made from slave owners. And that ability to create a financial system is uh, is empowering the United States as essentially first a regional economic powerhouse and becomes the basis of our global financial system today. So slavery is really at the heart and racial supremacy of, uh, of exterminating native peoples to take their lands and turn them into commodities, which also becomes a primary means of financing this financial system. Um, and enslavement of people kidnapped from Africa, that becomes the basis for the U.S. capitalist economy from the very beginning. You know, you argue in the book the design of the Constitution was the outcome of the war between democracy and property at the end of the 18th century, a war overwhelmingly won by property. Talk about that, what you mean by property coming out on top. Yeah, so these three insurrections that the framers are facing is one that they're really losing in some places. Uh, some of the states have started to issue paper money. All the states have issued paper money in the Congress in order to finance the revolution. The problem is there's a shortage of gold and silver. So there's not enough money in circulation for those who owe taxes and have unpaid private debts to actually repay it with cold hard cash. And so some of the states where the organized subsistence farmers have uh, gotten pretty influential and powerful start to issue paper money as what's called legal tender. In other words, uh, you were required by law to take it if somebody was offering it to you in payment of a debt. So that was a huge problem for many of the property elites because uh, much of that debt ended up in the hands of very small, a very small number of speculators. Those speculators were insisting that the states and Congress repay them based on the face value of the debts. And there were several different kinds of debts. There were um, officially uh, loans that were unpaid to the three European allies. There were loans that were unpaid to people who lended money during the revolution there were also IOUs. There were various kinds of paper script. Uh, for example, when an army marched through an area and they needed food, they would just fill out something and give it to the farmer and then take their, their, their animals and slaughter them. So there were all these different outstanding debts, which were tremendous. There was several hundred million dollars in, in, uh, in dollar terms at that time. And many of the states were on the verge of bankruptcy. They couldn't pay these debts. And so in those states uh, where the farmers had the most influence, they were able to do things like set up land banks where they could borrow money on good terms using their land as collateral. They got paper money that they could use 
to pay off these debts and these taxes. And then the states would retire those paper money. And so um, they ended up, um, some of the states actually paid off most or all their debts by the time of the Constitutional Convention. But then there was this other effort that was ongoing, and that was the demand that land be made cheap and affordable for white farmers. So this was a consequence of racial supremacy, that white farmers at the time wanted to benefit from the genocidal war against Native Americans to steal their land. But they wanted that land to be redistributed. The problem was there were several competing land companies that were funded by speculators, like some of those members of the Constitutional Convention, who uh, were claiming there were competing claims over those lands. And so those lands were tied up. And so the framers were very concerned. What would happen if, um, you know, in some states they got control of those lands stolen from Native Americans and redistributed it? We wouldn't have enough workers because these these laborers that are in the towns and the cities, they could just go and buy cheap land and, you know, give them the finger and they wouldn't have enough people to do all the labor and they couldn't import or in a vague, in a, in a, in a, um, in a, in a very, um, how could I say, distasteful way, breed more humans as slaves. Um, so there was a labor shortage. The price of labor was really high. So all these factors together was a real threat to elite dominance. Elites in some of the states were really kicked back on their heels. In some of the states, they dominated, for example, in Massachusetts. Uh, but in some of the states, they were they were facing a real class struggle that was happening at these different levels. And so when the when the framers get to Philadelphia, it's important that they protect these different and varying forms of property. And one of the most important ways they protect it was by giving the states that had disproportionately more slaves and free whites. Uh, more representation in the House of Representatives in the Electoral College. And this is the famous three-fifths clause, the infamous, I should say, three-fifths clause. Uh, this was after a long debate about uh, whether to count their slaves in the census for the purpose of determining how many seats in the House they would get and thus how many Electoral College votes they would get, because the Electoral College votes are based on having two senators, every state has two, plus the number of seats in the House, uh, they hit upon uh, what is famously called the three-fifths compromise. It's really not much of a compromise because the big slave states got disproportionate amount of power. So they count three-fifths of all slaves. That inflated the big slave states' representation in the House, and thus it inflated their representation in the Electoral College. And it's no accident that... Uh, by the time of the Civil War, uh, virtually all the presidents who are elected are elected either from a slave state or they're friendly to slavery or they're large slave owners. And uh, about half of them are all Virginians because Virginia was one of the two largest states for much of that time period as well, both in the population of free whites, but also in the population of slaves. So the protections for slavery that are built into the Constitution is also a protection for property. Because as we know, at the end of the Civil War, the 13th Amendment bans slavery except for prisoners. And so slavery has gone. But that language of protecting property is still very much in the Constitution and is still being used 
in a uh, in a very powerful way to protect slavery even today, uh, to protect property even today. So we're going to kind of shift gears once again. You know, there's growing anger in recent years around the Electoral College. And of course, right now we're in a situation in which Trump loyalists are being thrust into office saying that they will throw the election if possible. I'm just curious your thoughts on anger around the Electoral College. And also, you know, where does that come from and what was its purpose? Yeah, so the Electoral College was designed as a buffer. It was one of those minority checks um, that uh, I mentioned. There are numerous uh, examples of them throughout the constitutional system. So the Electoral College, Hamilton explained uh, in in one of the Federalist papers uh, that he wrote. Uh, he and Madison wrote the bulk of them. John Jay uh, wrote several others. Uh, but in one of the Federalist papers, uh, Hamilton uh, talks about how the Electoral College uh, fragments the majority uh, by having them vote separately for president and vice president in their separate states. And Madison also uh, speaks to this need to fragment the majority uh, in Federalist number 43 when he talks about how in a large country it'd be difficult for the majority to unify because, quote, the people are broken into so many interests and parties that a common sentiment is less likely to be felt and the requisite concert less likely to be formed by a majority of the whole, unquote. And so what Hamilton and Madison lay out in their arguments for ratification in the Federalist Papers is that the Electoral College will function as the ultimate minority check because Say there's a mass uprising, uh, the working class revolts, uh, and uh, a political party is formed. Perhaps it's a socialist party uh, that advocates for, um, you know, expropriating all private property and turning it into commonly owned and democratically run uh, possession of the population. Um, if that candidate wins uh, the popular vote, uh, the electors are not obligated to cast their vote for them. So the electors are uh, a group of people, uh, the number corresponds to the number of electoral votes in each state that each candidate or political party has. So if they win the popular vote in the state, only their electors go off to the state capitol and cast their vote. And we learned a lot about this with the 2020 election. And that's certified by the governor, and then that's sent to the Congress, and the Congress opens it up in a joint session on January 6th, <laughs> uh, and um, they read out the results. So the Electoral College became a means by which uh, a body of elites selected as electors could essentially check the will of the majority. But because the popular vote does not determine the winner of the electoral vote, we've also had Numerous instances where we've had presidents who didn't win the popular vote uh, win the Electoral College. Uh, presidents who won the Electoral College by, while only winning a plurality, the most votes, but not even a majority. Wilson was an example of that um, back a 100 years ago. Um, and then we also have now the new president, whereby a president who lost the popular vote wins the Electoral College because the Supreme Court stopped the recount. And that was the case of, of Bush, too. So the Electoral College is really the ultimate check because 
like I like to tell my friends on the center left, imagine Bernie Sanders did win. Imagine that he won for a moment. Um, let's say he wins the popular vote and he wins the Electoral College. Even then, uh, he wouldn't have uh, control of both parties of Congress. He, he could, you know, Bernie Sanders is not a, you know, you know, abolish pro- pri- private property kind of socialist. But imagine that he won. He wouldn't be able to get any of his initiatives passed through the House and the Senate. Uh, they would just wait him out for four years and he would look like a failure and uh, he wouldn't win re-election. So the Electoral College works hand in hand with these other minority checks to make sure that whoever is sitting on top of the position of the presidency uh, will uh, ensure that uh, the economic system operates so that it serves the needs of the property elites. I just think it's fascinating because, you know, we hear checks and balances and we automatically think, oh, that's, you know, to make sure that power is kept in check or the various houses of government don't go rogue or something like that. When in reality, what you're saying is that, no, you know, it's to check on us. It's to make sure that we stay in line and that their interests are sealed. Well, in fact, it's both. The framers were pretty explicit about both of them. We forget about the second one, and we only remember them saying, well, checks and balances exist to prevent another king or a monarch or a dictator. We came very close to having that on January 6, uh, 2021. But what what gets left out, what gets censored out of that is they also said it would prevent a tyranny of the majority over and over again in their writings, in their debates. They talk about checks and balances being necessary, as Madison said, to prevent rule of the one, the few, or the many. So they didn't trust themselves. They didn't trust their fellow elites. They didn't trust any one person. And they certainly didn't trust everybody. So the best approach was to use this system of separation of powers, to put a little bit of powers in the three branches, separate the powers between the federal government and the states, share those powers, supposedly, um, so that if change happens, it doesn't happen fast. If somebody like a Trump comes into office, well, you won't be able to change everything very quickly because we, we fellow elites, if we don't like what he's doing, we can block him. Um, but what happens when somebody goes outside of that system and just ignores all the checks? That's what George Bush, too, did. That's what Obama did in some ways and uh, many other presidents, starting with Washington and certainly Trump. Uh, took that to a new a new height, uh, attempting to install himself permanently, backed up by uh, essentially far-right white nationalist armed militias who would uh, carry him, like at a punk rock show, uh, back into the Oval Office. Explain the fight between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. What caused uh, that tension? You know, we think about, you know, the Federalist Papers, you know, what is that actually all about? Right. So another mythology around the Constitution is that it's um, what the historian uh, James Lowen uh, called the melodrama of history in his lies that my history teacher told me. An amazing book. Um, sadly, we lost him a few years ago. But uh, the melodrama of the Constitution is these were geniuses who designed a democratic system to last for the ages and it sailed through to ratification, but nothing could be further from the truth. While four states quickly ratified with almost no opposition, but in the middle of winter, um, 
the a couple of states voted down the Constitution in their first vote because those who were opposed to ratification finally were able to get organized. These are the folks that historians call the anti-federalists, whereas those who supported ratification called themselves federalists. Um, and so each of these, uh, if you will, um, organized groups would publish uh, numerous editorials in newspapers. The problem was that the Federalists were all elites and the elites owned all the newspapers. And so many of the anti-Federalists were banned from virtually every newspaper. They only had a few sympathetic newspapers who would publish them. So they had to do it the old way. They had to send around copies of it as a pamphlet. Um, they were banned from the mails in some states. So the anti-federalists were not at the Constitutional Convention, although there were two who left early, who became pretty prominent, and they're one of the few sources we have of the uh, internal debates of the convention, which was under an oath of secrecy. Madison's is the main one, but Madison also changed that late in his life. Um, and there were a couple of others who voted no, and what we don't realize is that three framers actually voted no. Uh, they opposed the Constitution, although one of them later uh, changed his position um, and flipped to the other side. Um, so we never learn about the organized opposition to ratification. And so these anti-federalists were of many different um, political persuasions, if you will. Um, the, the two uh, who were at the convention uh, opposed it because they thought their their property and interests were best served under the Articles of Confederation. Um, and then there were others who thought that there should be significant uh, amendments to the Constitution before it was ratified. So there were there were actually many proposals for amendments that came up in the state conventions, particularly in Pennsylvania and uh, other states asking for uh, a Bill of Rights because there were virtually no rights in the Articles uh, of the Constitution. So the Anti-Federalists got organized, and for a little while, it looked like it was touch and go. It looked like the Constitution would not be ratified. And so what the framers ended up doing at these state ratifying conventions was they engaged in bribery. They uh, did some arm twisting. They also made some compromises, and one of the compromises was we will take up these proposals for amendments. We're not going to go back and revise this. We're going to ratify it, but we'll take up your proposals. And Madison famously did that in the first Congress, but he also craftily uh, whittled out, whittled it down to um, some that uh, he could rewrite into making it um, an expansion by by all means, you know, extending rights. Some of the Bill of Rights actually include rights. They're not all about rights, but he, they expanded rights to individuals rather than to groups. And he wrote he wrote the 12 that went out to the states. Uh, Ten were approved. Uh, he wrote them in such a way that uh, they wouldn't threaten uh, elite interests. Uh, so the anti-federalists, actually, we have a lot to thank them for because they were really the first critics of the Constitution. And sadly, it's almost impossible to read all the, the anti-federalist papers. There were actually more of them written than there were federalist papers. Uh, but the problem is you can go online right now and find numerous sources of the complete federalist papers. There isn't a single place online where there's an entire collection of the anti-federalist papers. The only place you could get it 
is now an ebook from the University of Chicago Press, and there's no longer a print version of it. So my field of political science is actually, I think, continuing to engage in uh, in intellectual censorship by um, really not publishing an entire accessible version of the Anti-Federalist Papers. And I just want to add that the legacy of the Anti-Federalists is a mixed one. Um, there were some really important and potent critiques of, of executive power, of the courts, potentially having judicial review. Um, but there were also some who thought that, um, that this new federals, this new federal government would be so powerful it'd overwhelm the people in the states and turn the states into functionary bodies. And so the anti-federalists, because they're not well known, are being captured on the far right right now. Um, for the last few decades. Um, but I don't think that many of their critiques of the Constitution really fit, but they're being exploited and manipulated by the far right today. You know, you note that the Constitution is painted as this living, breathing document, yet it has only been changed a few dozen times. You know, talk a little bit about that. Yes, absolutely. So another important minority check can be found in Article 5, and that's the process for changing the Constitution. The Constitution was never put to a popular vote. It was ratified by the states, and it required that nine states ratify for it to go into effect. That was a change from the Articles, which required all the states approve any changes to the Articles of Confederation uh, in the Congress, and then a a separate state vote. So the framers knew they were never going to get any changes to the Articles approved because of the consensus rules. So that's one reason they threw out the Articles. Excuse me. And uh, so when they designed the Constitution, not just to have nine states ratified for it to go into effect, but they also designed it to make it virtually unchangeable. In Article 5, it requires essentially as many as four different methods of amendments are possible. And both uh, there's essentially uh, of those four uh, measures, uh, they require two thirds of Congress and three quarters of the states in different variations. So the most common way for 26 of our 27 amendments has been that both houses of the Congress vote with a two-thirds supermajority to pass it to the states and three-quarters of the states ratified it. But there's also the possibility of two-thirds of the states calling for Congress to uh, send that amendment and three-quarters of the states approve it or to have a constitutional convention. The problem is we know right now Democrats and Republicans, they control both houses of Congress and all the states as a two-party duopoly, it's virtually impossible to get two-thirds anymore. Now, here's here's a shocker a lot of people don't realize, is that of those 27 amendments, there were originally over 10,000 that have been officially introduced into Congress. Now, if you do the math, that comes out to a 0.0027% success rate. In other words, another simple way to put it is that's a quarter of 1% just about success rate. (laughs) So it's virtually impossible to change this constitution. And that was the original intent of the framers. They wanted to, as I say, send a love letter to future elites. This is the constitution we wrote for you. It's intended to be virtually unchangeable and for you to block change. So any attempt to amend the constitution can be easily blocked. In fact, it only requires a small number of states with very, very little population 
to to keep an amendment from passing uh, the Senate, uh, for example. Um, so the the process of amending the Constitution um, is quite unusual because most countries around the world um, have commonly had one or more constitutional conventions. Um, we know Chile just attempted to revise their constitution. Unfortunately, it was voted down. Uh, but the constitutional amendment process is yet another one of those checks. And in fact, there's a there's also a, a very uh, little known uh, clause in Article 5 that also protects the Senate. The framers were quite aware that the Senate would not be popular. And so they put it in the last clause that no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. And they knew that giving each state two senators would put the large population states at a disadvantage and give extra influence to the small states. And those small states were originally states with a lot of slaves and very few free whites. And so that was another protection uh, for slavery. Uh, but it also makes it impossible essentially to get rid of the Senate because it's actually explicitly prohibited from uh, being changed by amendment. Well, just a few more questions here. We're going to switch gears once again. So when we hear somebody like Trump on the right saying, like, we want to return to the Constitution, I mean, you know, especially in light of what we've been talking about, it really seems like they're saying, like, we need to return to majority white rule or, you know, re-solidify racial supremacy within this settler-based system. You know, I'm just curious, you know, your thoughts when you hear politicians kind of pandering like that. Well, we certainly heard that long before Trump came around. Um, we hear it particularly from uh, groups like the Federalist Society, a very conservative body of legal scholars and very with a very large membership, um, including uh, many uh, federal judges and I believe the majority of the Supreme Court. Uh, these kinds of groups... Uh, were essentially led by the recently deceased uh, uh, Justice Anton Scalia um, and the current uh, Supreme Court Justice Thomas, um, who argue for interpreting the Constitution based on the originalism of the framers. In other words, we should only understand the Constitution based on how the framers originally intended. Now, I think that that fits in with Trump's slogan of make America great again, because I would agree with you that that's coded language for returning to a world in which uh, a small number of, of white elites ruled. Um, um, the majority of, of uh, whites would be uh, precluded from having political power. And then anybody who wasn't white would be in the state of indentured servitude or slavery. Uh, and that women, of course, would be uh, treated as the property of men. Um, what I encourage my students to do when I talk about originalism is I, I say, let's imagine if we went back to the world of 1787. Not only would we not have any paved roads, uh, but we would think that nature was inexhaustible. Um, we wouldn't have a public education system. But what would the population be like? Well, about a third of us would be enslaved again. Um, a number of us would be indentured servants, and many of us would be in the stocks in debtor prison. Where would I be? I would be uh, in debtor prison. I'm still paying off my student loans. Um, and I would be stripped of my citizenship because uh, we didn't have any mention of citizenship in the original articles. Uh, we don't get uh, any mention of citizenship or naturalization 
um, for people until the 14th Amendment. Congress is given the power over naturalization in Article One, but there's no there's no real application to people uh, until we abolish slavery. So if we went back to that time, and I would lose citizenship, I should say, because my father came to the country as an undocumented immigrant. So uh, he wouldn't be able to naturalize. Uh, I wouldn't have been born a citizen, and um, I would be in debtor's prison. So the easiest way to diffuse this is just ask people to do a thought experiment. Put yourself back in the times of 1787. Women wouldn't have rights. They would be seen as children. Native Americans would be exterminated as subhuman, um, and a good chunk of the population would be living in slavery. Not a pretty picture, and most people would not support that at all. So I'm curious, you know, with this in mind, how do we look on the events of January 6th? Well, I've been writing a lot about January 6th. I've published uh, several pieces about it, and uh, what I what I look at is uh, an example of a split among the elites. Uh, Trump is, um, in some ways, the the spear of a faction of elites um, who've really gone grown tired of our constitutional system of um, of having uh, to constantly push back against demands of the economic majority and um, essentially want to strip away what little what, what little consent and power we really have in this system uh, and to install somebody who essentially could rule for as long as he wants. Now, granted, remember that the presidency was designed without term limits. And um, some of the framers talked about the president as being a kind of constitutional monarch, if you will, who just has to run for re-election every four years. Uh, Hamilton wanted explicitly a monarch, uh, but they kind of changed that a little bit because they knew it would be unpopular. So in some ways, Trump's a seditious conspiracy attempt um, it is a coup, uh, a constitutional coup. Essentially, he's uh, asking for reverting back to before we had term limits uh, when we amended the Constitution in the 1950s to limit it to two terms. Um, and um, I, I, I think that this system is in a deep constitutional crisis, not just because of uh, Trump's seditious conspiracy and coup attempt, but also because he was just practicing, he was putting into into play the accumulated extra constitutional powers that presidents have designed and um, manufactured for themselves throughout the centuries, starting with even George Washington. Um, and so this is the, in some ways, a kind of logical extension of how the executive branch has become by far the most powerful branch in our system and has actually been able to put itself above the ordinary so-called checks and balances that the framers had designed. Um, essentially, their worst fears have come true, that uh, our system is descending into a despotism, but not of the majority. It's descending into a despotism of one and the, or the few, as Madison uh, wanted to avoid. Um, and so I think the way one step out of this constitutional crisis is that Trump should immediately be charged with seditious conspiracy. He'd be put on the same bench with uh, the two far-right leaders that are and their and their co-conspirators uh, that are un, that are on trial right now. He should be added. Uh, those same charges should be brought against the former president. He should be uh, perp walked in belly chains um, in into the jail. Um, and uh, the failure to do that with each passing day and week and month 
um, essentially is, um, unfortunately, I think, writing the beginning of the end for this constitutional system. If Trump is able to survive uh, without having these charges brought against him, and I think we have very compelling evidence uh, from the January 6th committee, which I followed very closely, and I actually uh, spoke several about 20 times this summer on local TV news uh, about the hearings. If he's able to survive this, essentially it's going to encourage another and probably even more effective attempt uh, to carry out a handmaid's tale coup of overthrowing the constitutional system. I guess the last question is that, you know, how do we approach dethroning the constitution just sort of in everyday life? You know, going forward, you know, how do we continue to talk about and view and address the Constitution? Well, I think the uh, the first thing is that many Americans have already stopped believing in the Constitution. While you ask people what they know about the Constitution, they'll mostly start with that's where we get our rights. But beyond that, many young people are incredibly cynical about the political system. Um, we don't have to look very far to see um, the violence that's inflicted uh, through uh, uh, by the police on people of color and and the working class uh, to see how uh, those rights are are not protected. So there's a lot of uh, mistrust and doubt about uh, our system of government, um, not just by young people, but I would say even across the political spectrum. So we're we're not starting from scratch, uh, and I think that we have to get beyond that cynicism and be able to demonstrate to folks that our constitutional system doesn't just work because it's broken, but it was designed not to work. It was designed to uh, to make it incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to realize political democracy and economic democracy. So we have, I think, we have uh, a few options available to us. And I just want to briefly describe uh, what these options are. The first one is we could try to amend the Constitution, but that's almost impossible, as I was talking about a few minutes ago. The second option is also Article 5 allows for a constitutional convention. We could we could call for a constitutional convention. Almost impossible as well. But unfortunately, right now, there is an effort on the far right funded by the infamous Koch brothers. I think there's only one alive still. Um, to uh, organize a constitutional convention. If that would happen, it would be a disaster. Uh, they would be, they would out-organize the rest of the population. They certainly have billions of dollars available. It would probably make things even worse if we could imagine that. So that's not a safe route either. Um, what I think we're left with here is essentially to think about where our power lies. And I, I think our power really lies in the work that we do, whether it's waged and unwaged work. And we're going through a resurgence of class struggle right now, of workers getting organized, of young people going into workplaces and organizing unions and striking. And I think we're seeing this wave, and a, a, a renewed in, uh, resurgence of organized workers asserting their power. And at some point, it could come to the point where there are numerous strikes um, and the opportunity for workers taking over their workplaces and unwaged workers taking over their communities and linking up is to redesign 
uh, a new system from below, from many different places that embraces our diversity and our unity, but by starting where our power is. And if this opportunity occurs, uh, democratizing and taking over uh, the economic system and replacing our capitalist economy, which is essentially a death sentence for humanity and many other species on our planet, uh, would allow us to design a different way of governing ourselves that is hyper-democratic. But we can't get there just by approaching it on the political side of the, of the, uh, of the, of the balance sheet, if you will. We have to democratize the economic system first in order to, dem- to, to democratize how we govern ourselves on the political side. We want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Again, the book is entitled uh, We the Elites. Do you have any closing thoughts? Well, I really appreciate taking the time to ask me these great questions. I think my closing thought is that um, the best way to get beyond the Constitution is that we stop expecting the Constitution to be a place that we can make change. I think we have over 200 years of history that change is not possible uh, through our constitutional system. So we need a new way to govern ourselves by ourselves. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.